Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly. This is a really special and timely conversation. It was a part of the Wellness of We online summit in collaboration with Anasa Troutman of the Big We and Nicole Cardoza from Reclamation Ventures. And it features my very dear friend and sister, Valerie Kerr. Valerie is a filmmaker, public speaker, civil rights activist, and author of the book See No Stranger, which is an urgent manifesto about revolutionary love to heal ourselves and transform the world around us. Valerie says that revolutionary love is the call of our time, a radical, joyful practice that extends in three directions, to others, to our opponents, and to ourselves. It enjoins us to see no stranger, but instead look at others and say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. And that is exactly how Valerie and I met. Two unlikely allies who found one another across time and space and difference. And while it was our suffering that united us, it was our relationship that transformed us. This conversation is about how relationship can transform us and what's possible when we embody a revolutionary love that transcends separation, scarcity, and supremacy. She says of this moment, the future is dark, but is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? Resistance alone will not deliver us. We need a love that will give birth to the nation that we all deserve. Have a listen. Um, Valerie. Hi, my love. <laughs> I just want to say, um, every time I, I see you, I, I, I wonder if I'll ever get over this, but every time I see you, I think about like the miracle of our friendship. Yes. I mean, literally like every time I get goosebumps and I'm like, oh, God is so good. <laughs> That's how I feel about like our story. Um, I want to read something that you wrote because it speaks, I think, to our story. Um, You say that revolutionary love is the call of our time. Yes, more than ever now. It is a radical, joyful practice that extends in three directions, to others, to our opponents, and to ourselves. It enjoins us to see no stranger, which is the name of your book, coming out like any day now, (laughs) but instead to look at others and say, you are a part of me I do not know yet. And that is exactly how you and I met in fact, right? Like two completely unlikely allies who found one another across time and space and (laughs) difference. And, and while it was like, it was our suffering, right? That united us. It was our relationship that transformed us. And when I think about revolutionary love, I don't, I don't know that I have words to define it. Like, I don't know if I can actually say with words what it is, but I know how it feels right? It feels like our story. It does. And it feels, I feel like what I'm feeling right now, I mean, in the last, I don't know, in the last um, couple of days, like so many of you, I've just been cycling through my own, um, my own grief, my, my own rage. Um, We're still kind of wrapping our minds around the number 100,000. And in the midst of that, we have the video of George Floyd's gruesome killing 
And we know that this pandemic is just exposing how black and brown people like George have been disproportionately impacted by this virus and the economic and racial disparities it is uncovering. And it's all kind of coming together and trapped in one body. And I've been numb and I've been shaking and I've been crying. And then I join you all in this room. And I just feel this release like it's still there, but I'm held in community. I, I see you all in the chat. Yes, I see. I, I remember meeting you all in Ann Arbor and Kripalu, and yeah. I see all the love and affection. I remember that even though we, in those moments when we feel so alone, that we are deeply interconnected yeah. um, and interdependent. And and I think of us as like we're like trees in a forest. We look as though we are standing apart, but we are yeah. we are connected through those roots in the earth. Yeah. Even now, we're all at our separate screens, but here we are. When I see you, Carrie, and I think about our story, I can feel that energy that I need when I feel like I can't do it alone. Yeah. So can I tell them our story? Yeah, yeah, go. <laughs> um, so for those of you who don't know me, I've, I've been a civil rights activist since I was in college, uh, and not by choice. It was in the wake of the horror of September 11th, um, hate violence swept through city streets across America. It was another time of crisis. And then too, there were a group of Asian American communities all lumped together as them. And Sikh Americans alongside our Muslim American brothers and sisters became targets of hate. And the first person killed in a hate crime after September 11th was a man I called uncle. So Balbir Singh Sodhi was a Sikh father who was standing in front of his gas station wearing turban, beard, planting flowers when a man shot him four times in the back and said that he was a patriot. That murder turned me into an activist. I realized that telling the stories of my community and fighting for our civil and human rights was a matter of life or death because state violence was soon followed by hate violence, right? Policies by the state that then targeted our communities continue to make us um, vulnerable, continue to make us strive and long to be seen as equal and as human in America. And that, that moment really happened just, I mean, September 15th was when the murder happened. So September 11th, September 15th. And really when I think back on my life, it's September 15th and boom, the rest of my life was like going, you know, learning how to make films and becoming a lawyer and becoming an organizer and developing this like activist toolkit and laboring not just with my community, but with multiple communities on the front lines, trying to fight the good fight and not taking time to breathe until I met you, Carrie. We were in some small organizing room and I tell my story like I tell my story and Carrie came up to me and said, our stories are connected. Yeah. <laughs> you are my sister and our stories complete each other and this is why. Do you want to take over? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's, even in just hearing you tell your story now, I, I would, you know, we, we met um, 15 years after 9-11. Right. And so for 15 years, I was telling a similar story, but a completely different story, right? Because my stepdad, um, his house, he, he, he was a, a lieutenant at the South Street Seaport Station, which you and I visited together. And he was one of the first people to respond um, when the first plane hit the towers. Um, so when I would often tell that story, I would often say that my, my stepfather, Joe, Lieutenant Joseph Levy, was one of the first people to die, 
one of the first first responders to die in the towers, right? Because the second tower came down first. He actually saw the plane hit the second tower and re rerouted his um, his truck to that um, to that tower so much so that nobody knew where he was, right? He was he he just sort of like responded to the thing that he saw happening right before his eyes. It was total chaos. Um, so for 15 years, I was telling the story of Lieutenant Joe Levy. Um, as being one of the first people we lost. And then I heard you telling the story of, of Balbir Sodi as one of the first, uh, you know, as the first, right, um, Sikh and Muslim um, American murdered in the wake of 9-11. And I realized that for 15 years, my story had been incomplete, right? Like that, that's, what that, that's what that disruption did to me is I was like, oh my God, like this, this and I and I really think I carried like the dominant narrative of 9/11, that really only acknowledged one part of that that crisis, right? It really only acknowledged and grieved for some, and I just think that's so relevant in this particular moment, given like who we get to grieve for and who we don't. And um, and and meeting you made me realize that my story was was incomplete, right? That because I had thought that 9/11 was the worst of it, like the most in, unimaginable um, and devastating loss, right? But that was just the beginning for Balbir Sodi and so many Sikh and Muslim Muslim Americans, right? Because since 9/11, like we have given into a culture of retaliation that has resulted in policies of discrimination, surveillance, um, deportation, even death. Right. And and as if like two thousand nine hundred and ninety six deaths wasn't enough, I believe something like one million people died in the war on terror after 9-11. Right. So it's not just like the loss of 9-11 that we, we often hear like dominant media talking about. And that was the story that I was told It was the cost of 9-11. It was what we did because of 9-11 in the name of 9-11. And and in the moment I met you, I think what really what enraged me was what we did in the name of my stepdad who gave his life. He, he did not give his life for that. Um, so your story changed me. And what happened next, everybody, <laughs> then changed the course of our lives together. Um, so Carrie invited me to join her at Ground Zero on the 15-year anniversary mm -hmm. of her stepfather's death, September 11th. And I remember being really nervous that morning, Carrie. I showed up and I'm always on the other side of the orange barricades and I come really up close to them and the police officers are glaring at me. And I remember you showing up with this wide smile and throwing your arms around me and telling him, she's with me. <laughs> and you put a pin on me and led me into the sacred space where they were reading the names. And it felt like such a, an honor to be there with you. And I remember you took me down into the 9-11 Museum and there's a small room where they show a map of the towers and voice recordings that were recovered in the rubble and then they played Joy, Joe's last words on the recording. Do you want to share what he said? Yeah, he, he was, well, so one of the miracles of the story of my stepdad is that 
while so much of the radio um, transmissions were lost in the towers because it was chaos, his was reco recovered. And they have his interactions all the way up until the moment the second tower came down. And the last thing he said two seconds before was, um, I'll be right there. He said, I'll be right there to you, to his men. He was actually trying to break down a wall that he was trapped behind on the 78th floor, which was the floor of impact. So I hear those words and I wanna to read to you what happens next because I tell this story in See No Stranger. This is my book. My chest cracked open. I began to sob. Carrie looked at me tenderly and put her arms around me and we cried together. My grief for Joe was fresh, hers practiced, so that when she stopped crying, I just kept going. <laughs> I was <laughs> grieving Joe, but because what Carrie said, because every name was Joe's name, I was grieving all of the people who died in the attacks. I realized that after 15 years, I had never been given the chance to grieve 9-11, not even a day, not even an hour. This was the case for so many of us who jumped into crisis response mode to protect our families and communities from hate. We were robbed of the space to breathe, let alone the right to grieve with our country. Now the tears came, and 15 years later, 15 years later, it was a relief. Carrie had given me the gift of time and space to grieve with her. How can we presume to grieve people we never knew? People who don't look like us or share the same history with us? Here is the answer. Grieve with those who loved them. Grieve with the living. That is the revolutionary act. Mm. And you all want to know what happened right after that? <laughs> I invited Carrie to come with me to my second Ground Zero, the gas station where Balbir Singh Sodhi was killed on September 15th. And so five days, four days later, Carrie boards a plane, arrives in Arizona, and she accompanies me to the gas station. And, you know, there are no orange barricades here, no big memorials. It's just an ordinary Chevron gas station in the Arizona desert. And in the corner, there's a marble plaque naming Bobir Uncle's story and the spot where he bled to death. And Carrie and I stood there, and Rana, his brother, and Joginder Kaur, mm. his wife, were there. And they looked at Carrie with awe. Because in all of these years, in 15 years, no one from the September 11th families had come all the way to grieve with them to say, you are my sister, brother, you matter, your grief is my grief. It was, it was an act of revolutionary love, Carrie, our shared grief. Well, and that's not the only thing. I mean, they, I mean what I remember most about that was when I arrived, y'all welcomed me into your home. And you, you actually served me a homemade meal. Do you remember this? <laughs> and, and we spent literally the whole day telling stories of Balbir Sodi and Lieutenant Joe Levy. <laughs> like that's literally what we did. And we cried together and we learned together and we looked at pictures. Um, and I stayed over that night. I mean, it was, um, it was such a radical and intimate act of like, of, of healing that I don't know that I had ever experienced before. 
just randomly like being allowed to walk through someone's door and being welcomed like I was a part of the family. Well, I, and then being asked to speak. Y'all asked me to speak at the memorial and I was like, I don't want to speak. I want to be in the back invisible. I want to be mourning and, and giving reverence to the life of Bobby or Sodi. And anyway, it was, um, it was revolutionary. It was revolutionary. And it was, um, it was beyond everything that I had learned about how um, to heal and how to mourn and how, and how to move forward. So this is how I define revolutionary love, Carrie. Revolutionary love is when you are brave enough to see no stranger, mm -hmm. to let their grief into your heart, yeah. to fight for them when, you need, when they need you, and to create a world that we're all longing for, where all of us see one another as sisters and brothers and siblings and no person is considered disposable. And I want to name that now because I know everybody on this call right now is grieving something. All mm -hmm. of us are carrying a heavy load. Some of us heavier than others, but all of us are carrying a heavy load. And all of us now are grappling with what we do when the grief feels overwhelming. A hundred thousand lives overwhelming. Every day here in Los Angeles, we've lost more than 2,000 people. It's a hot spot in California. And I hear the sirens go on every day throughout the day and sometimes I just don't want to hear them and then my son tugs at my sleeve and says mommy remember our practice I'm like what did I teach him he said every time a siren goes by close your eyes and say may you receive our help may you receive our love oh and it's hard <laughs> but I take a breath and I do it and I remind myself that we can return to the labor even when we're tired even when we're tired so whatever it is that you're grieving, if you're grappling how to grieve George Floyd right now, this is why your grief matters. Grieving together is frontline social justice work. Yeah. When we grieve together, we gain the information for how to fight together. So what I, I'd like to do, Carrie, if it's okay, is I want to read you another passage about thinking yeah. about grief through history as a force yeah. through history. And then I want to ask you all what it is that you are grieving and we'll, we'll do a little uh, ritual together. Are you ready? Okay, so, um, so, so see no stranger, this is 10 core practices of revolutionary love and grief is the second practice. So I'm reading from chapter two. How many have had to grieve alone in the wake of mass violence in the United States? I thought of the indigenous people of North America who after enduring campaigns of coordinated slaughter were sent to boarding schools to have their cultures and native tongues ripped out of them. I thought of the black people who are told that systems of slavery and Jim Crow are sins of the past and have no bearing on the disparities in health and income and education and safety of black people today, that the mass incarceration of black bodies is their fault, and that the police who kill their sons and daughters are worthy of exoneration. America does not know how to grieve black lives because doing so would mean accepting that there was never complete abolition. Mm -hmm. Slavery transmuted into segregation, which morphed into discriminatory laws, 
And now into policies that appear neutral on their face, but still disparately violate people of color. New horrors keep arising from old impulses. The past keeps bleeding into the present. No civilization in the world is, is exempt, but what is particular to America is that many who suffered enormous loss and destruction have had to do so alone, had to marshal language to tell the story, only to find that there was no one to hear it because their suffering contradicts the story that the nation keeps telling itself. America is a beacon of light, the story of American exceptionalism. Our story of exceptionalism doesn't allow us to confront our past with open eyes. A nation that cannot see its own past, cannot see the suffering it has caused, suffering that persists into the present. A nation that cannot see our suffering cannot grieve with us, a nation that cannot grieve with us, cannot know us, and therefore cannot love us. Mm -hmm. But, Carrie, there have always been people who did what the nation as a whole did not. This was you. They crossed the line and took the hand of someone who did not look like them and wept with them as if to say, you are grieving, but you do not grieve alone. When we allow ourselves to be changed by the experience of another's pain, we build bonds with people we once called strangers. Sharing in one another's grief can lead to sharing in one another's joy, and this is why, mm. this is why it is revolutionary. America's greatest social movements, from civil rights to women's rights to black lives, were rooted in the solidarity that came from shared grieving. First people grieve together, then they organized together. Often they sang and celebrated together. This is not the dominant narrative of American history, but if you look closely, you can see many stories of solidarity in response to great violence or injustice. There are people who rush to bury the dead, cut down the lynching noose, or attend the memorials to say, not in my name. When people who have no obvious reason to love each other come together to grieve, they can give birth to new relationships, even revolutions. So everyone, I invite you to let us witness your grief and let us hold your grief and let us grieve with you. In your chat box, I want you to write down, you can complete the sentence, I am grieving and name what it is that you're grieving who you're grieving, what you're grieving. And Carrie and I will just start reading them and witnessing them. <sighs> that black lives are disposable. I grieve for the system of hate. I grieve America's divide. I'm grieving my mother who passed. I'm grieving the loss of black lives. I am grieving my brother, Brad. My nephew's suicide. The death of the earth. I'm grieving the loss for humanity. The victimization this virus has brought our youth, the deprivation of a healthy childhood from the sorrows of domestic violence. I'm grieving the loss of my collective innocence. Mm. George Floyd. 
I am grieving for George Floyd, Omar Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Mateo de Cosmos, Lord Lope, Lord Lopez for the state of this country. My nephew's suicide. I'm grieving for my mother's health. Senseless murders, torture. I'm grieving the loss of my son. My idealism. I'm grieving my own trauma, having experienced sexual assault. The cruel treatment of people of color. I'm grieving the loss of community. My mother's health. My brother, Jesse. George Groom, Sr. and Stanley Harper, who passed. I'm grieving the loss of those who suffer injustice. I'm grieving the loss of a woman I worked with as a domestic and sexual violence advocate who was, who was brutally murdered by her husband while in quarantine. I'm grieving the loss of innocence for our children who witness all of this. The inhumanity in this country. The homeless people dying every day. My friend and beloved study partner just told me she feels uncomfortable walking in her mostly white neighborhood. The children, parents, sisters, and brothers that are murdered by the state. Mothers who fear for their children. I'm grieving the loss of connection. The conversations black mamas are having with their sons about this world. I am grieving my uncle's death from alcoholism. The loss of a 29-year-old relationship and family dynamic I tried so hard to maintain for my two kids. I am grieving that white supremacy has led me to rob my children of their innate wildness and freedom. To all those lost to COVID. I am grieving the feeling of safety again and again and again. I am grieving stolen breath. Okay. So we want to say to all of you whose grief we named and all of you whose grief we did not name, but we see that we see you, you are grieving, but you do not grieve alone. And so I invite you to put your feet on the ground and just notice the difference between holding your body up and letting the earth hold you up. Place your hands on your lap, palms facing up, and take three deep breaths with me. Let it come. Good. Let it go. We are grieving the loss of stolen breath, but we have the power to put breath back in our body. Let it come. Let it go. One more time. Let it come. Let it go, and on your next exhale, I want you to imagine those roots shooting down from the bottom of your feet into the earth. Those roots are going down, down into the earth. Can you feel them anchoring you? Now those roots are going horizontally, out sideways, in all directions, mm. and they're meeting my roots, and they're meeting Carrie's roots. Carrie, can you feel our roots entangling in each other? Yes, we are part of each other. We're like trees in a forest. We look as though we stand apart, but we are connected down in the earth, and that, what does that mean? That we can send each other what we need to receive in this moment. So take another inhale. And whatever it is that you need, if it's energy, if it's resilience, if it's bravery, if it's breath, just let that into your body. Let it out. Let it go. And when on your exhale, you can send whatever you wish to send to others on your exhale. So ready? We're going to let it come. Receive. 
Let it fill your body, direct your breath into where you need it and let it go. Give. Good, let it come, receive. Let it go, give. And slow it down, really notice. Let it come, receive. Good, let it go, give. Let it come, receive. Let it go, give. And one more time, let it come, receive. Let it go, give. Mm. Just noticing now what sensations appear in your body. Good. Where does grief appear? And where does connection appear? Oh, because Carrie, what I'm feeling right now is a little bit of rawness in my throat from reading all of that and carrying all that grief, but you know what else I'm feeling? I'm noticing ah, it's mystery, tingling, rising from my heels through the back of my calves up into my legs. Were you sending me some good energy? Yeah, always. Because I think I got it. <laughs> I'm feeling like such a swelling of my heart, like in, and it feels like a heavy swelling um, and a joyful one at the same time. And I, I, Anasa spoke of this the other day of how like, these moments actually have the capacity to hold both the joy and the pain. Um, and so I'm just feeling that, that it feels like a paradox and yet it's like related. And our bodies have the capacity to hold both, right? Our heart is like a muscle, the more you use it, the stronger it becomes. And so I'm just noticing this chat that you all are feeling it, energy flowing, unstuck, tingling. I feel it in my chest, a lightness, a release. I feel an expansion. Beautiful connection. Oh, my loves, this is possible whenever you need it. Whenever you need it, it's not just in this virtual Zoom room. You just find a quiet spot, put your feet on the ground, and imagine those roots because we remain connected. We can send each other and receive what it is that we need. And I think that is how we become brave in our grief. You and I can't beat the memorials together right now, Carrie. We can't be with it at, the, at those places with all the folks on the call, but we can in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, find, be that brave. Mm -hmm. Be that brave with our grief. It reminds me of, there's this quote that I read somewhere that said, grief doesn't just change us, it reveals us. And you, you said before, grief gives us the information for how to fight. But I, I also know, because I know this about your story, grief also gave you the information for how to forgive. Because there's another part to your story. Yes. Oh, that night, Carrie, that night that we were standing there and looking at the spot where Bobir Uncle dead to, bled to death, and we were putting flowers down at that spot and candles at that spot. I was sitting next, standing next to Rana, Bobir Uncle's brother, and I think it was this feeling. You know, the grief was so heavy, but yeah. notice this release and that energy that yeah. sort of it gets unlocked. It becomes creative. 
And a question occurred to me that I had never asked myself before. I said, if Carrie and I can see each other as sisters, who else could I see? See no stranger. <laughs> and I turned to Rana and I said, who have we not yet tried to love? And I asked him if he had a chance to talk to Bilbir uncle's killer, would he? And he said, yes. And the next morning we called Frank Roque, Bilbir uncle's murderer in, in federal prison. And we asked him just one question, why? And at first he was, I'm sorry for those killed on 9-11, but I'm sorry for your brother, but you have to understand that it was all just excuses and defense. And I was starting to get really angry and realize like, what am I doing? <laughs> there is a limit to love. You do not call yeah. your uncle's killer. <laughs> there's, there's a boundary. Right? And we were putting ourselves at risk. Something, something remarkable happened. Rana, because I was protecting him, he had the space to keep listening and he could hear what I could not hear. He said, Frank, this is the first time I have heard you say that you were sorry. And Frank says, yes, I, I am sorry. I'm sorry for what I did to your brother. And when I go to heaven to be judged by God, I will ask to see your brother and I will hug him and I will ask for his forgiveness. Mm. And Rana said, we already forgave you. Oh, Carrie, <laughs> forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is freedom from hate. And in that moment, Rana and I became what we always were. We were never victims. We were agents of revolutionary love. We had the ability to write our own story. I want to be clear, though, it took us 15 years to make that call. Right? I was going to say, I'm like trying years, to imagine. 15 years <laughs> of grieving and raging. And a lot of people had to love us really well so that we could be brave enough and safe enough to make that call. I think withholding forgiveness is also an act of agency. But when that mm. moment comes, when some of us are ready to make that, to let go of whatever it is that we're, and we, and we are ready to enter that, it is, it opens up the previously unimaginable possibility of reconciliation. Yeah. I mean, as you were telling that story, every time I hear you tell that story, I try to imagine myself in your shoes and I wonder if I could do that truly. Um, and it just makes me, um, forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is hard. Um, and it makes me, it reminds me of like, you, you talk a lot about how love is, love is a labor, right? That, that's the analogy that you use. And that, and that part of that work, right, is, is hard. It's, it's not simple, right? Um, it's a journey. Yes. And we all have different roles at different times. And so this is what I want to be clear of. You may not, you may be thinking of opponents right now saying, yeah. I cannot, if, if your body is activated, if you are flushed with rage or grief, if you're shaking, if your opponent has their boot on their neck, this is not the time to look up at them and love them. I cannot right. love this president right now. But, right. but my loving, my loving act is to survive is to take care of myself, is to love myself. This is why I call revolutionary love is loving others, our opponents and ourselves. And it's done in community. So 
If I can't do that work, then my loving act is giving others permission to do that work. You see, listening to our opponents, loving our opponents is not just moral, it is strategic. It is pragmatic. When somebody sits down with those white supremacists and Trump, motor, Trump voters and listens beneath the slogans and sound bites, what do they hear? Pain, insecurity, unresolved grief, hate that is like a virus in them that makes it painful to live in a world where you think that the country's been stolen from you and that people who look like me are out to, to get them. Like, there is suffering there. And if there's a wound there, and it's not, it may not be my job to tend to those wounds, but somebody has to tend to those wounds. So I look at my white allies saying, I can't call your uncle or your relative or your neighbor, but maybe you can find the bravery to sit down and listen well enough. Because you know what? You're gathering information for me to how to fight better. Our Let's job is, is, not, is not just to remove bad actors from power. It is to, con- cha- is to change the conditions that brought them into power in the first place. And the only That's way right. we will do that is if we see all those people we want to hate and say they are human, too, and they are frail, too. And we can try to think of a vision of an America that includes even them. Well, and this is so much of what I've learned from you is, is how to love in such a way that we can get free. Like that's, I feel like what I've learned from you. Um, And you astonish me all the time in the way that you love. Um, And I I really appreciate the nuance that you're bringing to revolutionary love and to to the relationships, right, that are embedded in that ecosystem of of revolutionary love and how we we all play different roles, right? It's not like all, right, this is not like an equal opportunity system. It's like based on like our social location, based on our lived experience, based on our proximity to power and privilege, right? Like we all have different roles to play in the revolution of love. Um, And I think part of coming closer in relationship and seeing no stranger is actually understanding those roles more clearly for ourselves and for one another. Yes. When I say revolutionary love is when you are brave enough to see no stranger, it's like seeing no stranger in others, in our opponents, but also in ourselves. Yeah. As people of color, women of color, we live in a culture that wants to make us strange to ourselves, that makes us want to hate ourselves. It took me so many years to learn that my body was worthy. All this time, a voice in my head, you are not good enough, you are not smart enough, you are not beautiful enough, you are not white enough, fair enough. You are not American enough and therefore not human enough. It took me so many years, like my 30s, mid 30s, <laughs> before I could finally quiet that voice and summon the wise woman in me to say, no, my love, you are worthy of this earth. And this earth is ready for the gifts you have to offer it. Each of us has specific gifts that the earth is ready for. Audre Lorde says, we must learn how to mother ourselves, right? I had to learn how to be as gentle and compassionate to myself as I am to my child or to my my baby daughter. Only then in telling myself, speaking to myself with that much tenderness and compassion did I start to learn how to love myself? And in this time, if you're a person of color, if you're a queer person disabled, if you're a person without status, if you're a woman, if you are someone who is at the brunt of the oppression right now, that is your revolutionary act, is to stay well, stay alive and stay well and put your hand on your heart and know that, go ahead, put your hand on your heart. You are alive in this moment. You are safe in this moment. 
you are brave enough in this moment to love yourself. And when in doubt, your body will always tell you what it needs, what it needs now and next. There's a time to breathe and there's a time to push and you will know when and how to breathe and you will know how and when to push if you summon that wise voice, that wise woman inside of you. Can you talk more about um, the breathe and the push and, and, and how to dance that dance? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll back up and say um, this metaphor, like I, birthing labor is a metaphor. Um, I thought about how we always say like fight the good fight and soldier on and right. we all know what that means, right? No, only a subset of men, mostly men in human history, have had the experience of going to war. But it's a universal metaphor, like the, the bravery to, to fight the good fight. So I thought so too, only a subset of women give birth or give birth that particular way. And yet the metaphor may be useful to all of us in all of our creative labors, the courage it takes to create something new. You see, I think loving well and caring well is not a biological trait. It is a human birthright. We all have the capacity to love. And I learned what love was, I think, when the first time my first baby was placed on my chest after my son was born. I remember just like feeling that rush of oxytocin, like flooding my body and like shaking from it. And it's like this gorgeous like rush of feeling. In the meantime, my mother standing next to me is already preparing like the dal and chol to feed me <laughs> like getting to work like feeding her baby as i'm feeding mine and i look at my mother and i say oh she's never stopped laboring for me from yeah. my birth to my son's birth i never thought my mom had an arranged marriage at 18 she was like stayed at home raised us i always thought she like point me pointed me out in the world so i never look to her life to give me information about how to fight for justice until that day where I said, oh, this love is more than a rush of feeling. Love is fierce. Love is bloody, disciplined, demanding, life-giving. It is a choice we make over and over again. It creates life. It transforms life. It is revolutionary. What happens when we extend a little bit of that love beyond what evolution requires to others, to our opponents, and to ourselves? Mm. And so... So that's how I came into this work and into this message and into this book. And that's also how I started to ask a question that you have asked me, heard me ask for the last four years. This darkness in our world, this darkness in our nation, is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? What if our America is not dead, but a nation still waiting to be born? In birthing labor, the stage right before the baby is born is the most fiery and painful stage. It is called transition. And that's precisely when the midwife tells you to breathe and to push. And not to breathe once and push the rest of the way. No, there's a rhythm. Breathe and push and then breathe again. Oh, Carrie, my loves, I believe that we are in a moment of massive transition in, a, in the United States and in human history. Is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? It depends on how we are breathing and how we are pushing and whether we are summoning the bravery to show up to the labor, 
to play the role that only we know that we can play, and each of us has a role. And so I, that's why I believe revolutionary love is the call of our times. I believe it is how we birth the world to come. It is how we stay in the labor. One of the things we've been talking about over the last couple of days, and, um, and I think it's often left out of our social justice conversations, is how to imagine better, how to imagine beyond, you know. Um, and, and you just named it, like the America that has never been, the America that is waiting to be born. And I say that right now while acknowledging that, you know, America has never been, right? Um, it's not how we were fo founded. Um, we are, you know, it, we stole this land, right? Like we have a, a long history um, of, of never having been what we have aspired to. And I'm, I'm wondering how, how you imagine the, the future that is yet to be born, how you navigate this transition where we, it feels like we are deeply steeped in the push right now. And it is painful and it is, it is hard to see past it. How do, we, how do we hold a vision for what's next? How do we imagine beyond the limitations of what we know? See, I think you do know. When we were standing at that gas station, when I was standing with you at Ground Zero, when you had your arms around me and I had my arms around you and we weren't strangers and we weren't colleagues or teammates or even neighbors, we were sisters crying together. I think we do know, I think each of us can remember a moment when we felt seen, when we felt safe, even just when we felt cared for and loved when we were in community and we knew that everyone mattered and there was grief there and there was conflict there, but there was joy there because there was a recognition that we were part of one human family. Mm. I think each of us have had moments, you know, at the kitchen table, in our homes, in the classroom, have moments we've tasted it. And so our job is to recall that, what elements made it the beloved community. And now to scale it up, <laughs> because the solutions are not unknown. Community advocates yeah. and communities of color have long given us the policy reforms. We know that we need the Green New Deal. We know that yeah. we need universal basic income. We know yeah. we need Medicare for all. We have the policies. We've been calling for them. We have the stories to prove them. All we need is you. We need Carrie and me and all of you times a million. We need enough voices to say now, now, now. And what is giving me hope is that I see that millions of people are awakened now to the fact that we belong to each other, that we are only as strong or safe or well as the most vulnerable among us. And we are seeing actions and proposals that we were told were impossible before. Yeah. There's an, in the, in the worst moments, right? We're seeing movement, right? Yes. Like right. movement is happening right before our eyes, even as, um, even as, you know, dismantling is happening right before our eyes. Yeah. So, and so the, 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 the key is to stay in the labor, 
Stay in the fire of the labor. I want you to last. I, I wrote this book after the presidential election, 15 years, right? 15 years is shortly after we were together, 15 yeah. years of civil rights work. President is elected. I'm realizing I'm raising my son in a nation more dangerous for him as a little brown boy than it was for me. I had all this like massive, beautiful, elegant, fancy, your word, toolkit. <laughs> and I could not, lawyering, filmmaking, organizing, I couldn't do any of it. I was paralyzed. And I, I needed to know how to last. I didn't want to live, Carrie. Yeah, and I, I had a gift that. That, that women who are mothers and activists rarely receive. I had a room of my own and time to think. And I moved. I got a book advance. And I moved my family to the rainforest in Central America. And I spent a year just reading and writing and thinking. And I poured through the stories of my life. And I poured through the social movements of the past. And the lessons of spiritual teachers through the ages and the answer was staring at me. It was love. It was love. And so I, I began writing this book and I did not know it was going to be medicine for this time. But I want to tell you that the wisdom I discovered in this book about love and about revolutionary love has saved my life. It's mm -hmm. how I'm going to grow to be an, an old woman. Carrie, I'm going to grow to be a very old woman. You're going <laughs> you. to grow to be an old woman. We're going to be I old see us women. Together. We're going to last together. I want you to last. Yeah. I want all of us to last fighting for justice until we're the age of Grace Lee Boggs and then passing it on to the next generation. So love is what makes the labor for justice joyful. That's how we last. I love I love this reframe too around I, I get really overwhelmed by like the big meta visioning of like we have to have it all figured out right in like the future work and I just think about how powerful our meeting was like just our meeting in transforming both of our stories and both of our lives and how maybe the future is inside of that, inside of actually how we meet one another and, and, and remember who we are relationship by relationship. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm like, I, I'm someone who like loves big political work, as you know, like we do that work together often, but that has been a profound teaching for me that like, that it's Adrienne Marie Brown talks about fractals that we are all fractals, right, inside of the whole. And this work is about wholeness, right? Wellness is about wholeness. And we can't bypass um, the, the, the fractal, the micro relationships, the same way that we can't overlook the stranger, that we actually have to start small. She also says small is all. Um, and I feel like that that was what I learned in our story um, is that we don't have to solve for all the things and we don't have to like, we don't have to, you know, figure everything out and, and play the big, big game. We actually can start with ourselves and one another. And if we go relationship by relationship and heal and love and forgive and see differently and allow ourselves to be impacted by one another, that's a really good start. Revolutions happen in those big, grand public moments, but they also happen in the places where people are coming together to inhabit a new way of being. Yeah. 
And so, yes, relationship by relationship, but then how can you scale that up in the small venues of your lives? How can you make your home a pocket of revolutionary love, your school, right. your, your organization, your place of work? What policies can we, can we stand behind? What elected leaders will champion right. a vision where we can scale that up? I think that's my critique of this self-help spirituality wellness that's world right. is that loving yourself is not loving the world. Loving yourself is not liberating the world. It's part of it, but revolutionary love only happens when we are practicing love right. for ourselves and others and right. our opponents in, right. in community all together. Loving just our, ourselves is escapism. Loving just our opponents is self-loathing. Loving just others is ineffective. But when we are part of pockets of people practicing love in all three forms, then we begin to create that's the, the big that word. word. That's the big inter interconnected and whole work. Yes. And that's sort of the work, you know, that's sort of the, the, the culture shift we've been trying to lean into over the last couple of days is like the wellness of me is not just not enough. It's actually harmful. Yes. Which is why I and love what, the wellness of we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And it. this like, what is it? What does this look like um, where we get to take care of ourselves inside of the whole? Yeah, this, this where is we virtual, never turn our back. This is a virtual pocket of revolutionary love. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I know we're at time. Can I can I throw one invitation? Well, we we have we have a couple more minutes, and we're going to open up for questions until um, six fifteen. Are you okay until six fifteen? I am. Can, can I still make my invitation? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm just feeling it. I am just so wanting to put this book in your hands, um, and I I wish I could just transmit it through the screen. I can't tell you. Like you are the community. You are my people. You are the ones I most want. Um, to share my heart with and let it speak to the wisdom in your own heart. So, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love. It's available for pre-order now. You go to seenostranger.com. Everyone, my book tour was canceled. We had this big plan to have the book <laughs> tour be this mobilization, do 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 into the election, and all of that has evaporated. And so I am really leaning on my community, and it's really hard for me to ask anything, but I believe in this work. I believe in this medicine. So I'm asking you, if you have the capacity to buy one or the, the key number is three or four books, one for yourself and uh, two or three for others in your life, then I think we can start to really have it, give, give the book and the message a chance to break through the noise. So if you can order now, <laughs> this will be so I'm, this I'm will seeing be a lot of pre-orders on the chat, actually. So I think, I think it's already rush. worked. <laughs> We have a, a learning hub a C, a, on Sino Stranger that will be revealed of on the day of the do. launch where it give you tools and curricula and discussion guides to create your own packets of revolutionary love. So yeah. this is our offering to the moment. And we've got some links in the chat, y'all, for those of you who are asking, like, where can I find it and what's the link and how can I get a hold of the, the pre-sale? And what is the date again that it's going to be coming out? June 16th. I recorded the audiobook okay. in my closet because, you know, studios are closed. So... It's right there. So the audiobook and the ebook and the and the book book all come out on the same day. Um, they re apparently they really pay attention to hardcovers. So if you're able to, um, you can certainly have my voice in your ear in the audiobook. But if you're able to purchase hardcovers, that would actually give us a fighting chance. I love it. Um, Anasa and Nicole, I want to invite you all to come back in, and I want to answer some questions, y'all. If you have questions, put it into the Q and A. 
Um, and we do have a couple questions here that are beautiful. Anasa, do you want to do Q&A or do you want me to do it? I know, sorry. <laughs> Unmute yourself because I want to hear you. Yeah, I'm, I'm here for the Q&A, but before we do that, I'm just going to take a little bit of privilege and just how astoundingly potent that conversation was. That, that was, I was, I haven't shed a tear this whole four days, but today I shed tears. <laughs> and that, that practice of witnessing each other's, oh, I can't even, I can't even say the words because that took me out. That witnessing of other folks' grief is, that is one of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed. I've never read a, a Zoom chat and burst into tears before. That was the first. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first. So thank you so much, Valerie. The, you know, I um, a lot of people talk about love, and I'm like, that's a very shallow. That's not. That's not real love. But like, I I have I have nothing to say to you, but thank you, thank you for for being a stand for for revolutionary love, and thank you for um, for teaching us that love is not always fun, and love doesn't always feel good. Sometimes it's hard to tell, and that's the time when you lean in because that's when you know you're gonna have a breakthrough. Yes. And, um, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to read some questions. I'm going to put my glasses on so you're going to see a little glare. But this is what we have to do. To read. Oh, yeah, they all just came in. All right. Um, uh, I'd love to know your thoughts about those of us who struggle with loving ourselves in the same way. This is so beautiful, but I know that I have my own barriers to leaning into this type of love for others because I struggle to offer myself the same love. Yeah, uh, me too. Um, I, after, after my ba my first baby was born, I'm just like, la, 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 you're so beautiful. You're so good. Da, 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 da. I love you so much. Da, da, da. And then my, my husband's like, why didn't you talk to yourself that way? And I said, oh, I, you, you, he's right. And so everyone, I got, I got a journal and I literally just started practicing. Speaking to myself like I was my own sweet child. Like I was my own best friend. Like I was my own beloved. And you know what? This is what she sounds like. I call my, my wisest voice wise woman. Wise woman here. Wise woman says, oh, my love. She always calls me, like, oh, my love, you are tired today. It's okay. Why don't you lie down for five minutes and just breathe? It's okay. I got you. I got you. Okay, when you're ready, you can sit down and you can prepare for the Zoom chat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just be yourself. It's okay. It's okay. I got you. Literally. I mean, I talked to her throughout the day for everything. Um, and it took me three years. It took me three years to actually, I mean, every day I did this for three years and I felt like, Everyone, I'm moving through the world differently. It's like I rebirthed myself. I can say I love myself and I practice loving myself every day just by the way I talk to myself. So if it's a journal, you just start, I call it my wise woman journal. It's in the closet right now, <laughs> my wise woman journal. Take a journal, call it your wise woman journal. Choose somewhere else to vent and rage and da, da, da. In this journal, you're just speaking to yourself as if you are the most precious thing on earth because you are. And even little things like you're just going to lie down. You're just going to do this for five minutes. Go do this and come back and report to me in an hour. That granular. And if you need to, this is what I've 
come to do recently is like I um, I like walk down the street like I'm talking to my, my friend. This is before the pandemic, but really I'm just. I'm just using the voice memo and I'm like leaving a message for myself. Like, why is a woman here? Oh, my love, you're walking to your exercise class. It's okay. I'm so oh, proud I of you. Got out of bed. All right, this is it. And then I like, I walk around, I look around for a minute and then I listen to the message and I'm just like, yeah, right. Oh, like it's like, and I'm actually genuinely surprised. There's some magic that happens when we're just receiving exactly the tenderness we need. So those are a couple mm. of tools. Start practicing and you'll see, you'll see, you'll see. We can, we can, we can, we can learn how to love ourselves. I also have people in my life that are like, that will, and I'm like looking at some of them right now that will, that will remind me when I forget Mm -hmm. that like will hold me accountable to self-love. Like, are you doing that thing? (laughs) And that's helpful. I have a That's circle. I have a circle of girlfriends. You you met some yes. of them. Um, my six sisters, my sick American sisters, and every year we get together and we have wise woman ceremonies, and we let our wise women speak to each other and speak to ourselves. And I this is this is like this is at the end of this book. Maybe this whole book is about the birth of wise woman. But at the end of this book, I decided like I want to be faithful to wise woman all for all of my days. And so I said, how do I do that? And so. At a wedding ceremony, <laughs> I know. In sick wow. in sick tradition, there are just four pieces of scripture that you read and you set to music and you circle. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was I like I married wise woman and I came home and I was like, I told my husband, I married <laughs> twice, and he's like, thank God, <laughs> wise woman makes my job so much easier. Pressure's off. <laughs> Pressure's off. Okay, um, I think we're going to do one more question before we end. How do you create space for revolutionary love for those whose beliefs are juxtaposed to your own and words, ca- whose words and actions are causing harm? Well, again, if you think of that person and you're just like, oh, it's not your moment to do that work. Um, if you think of, there's some opponents where you just can't even... But there might be some folks who you think about, and if you can find a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of wonder, wondering, so I say love is an act of will. And the first step to love is wonder. Can you wonder about that person? What it's like to be them? What formed them? What breaks their heart? Why they think that? And if you can begin to wonder and you are safe enough, you might be in a position to sit down and think to yourself, you have a story that I need to hear. This is my Mm. mantra. What does it mean to see no stranger? It means to look upon the face of anyone around us and say, you are part of me. I do not yet know. Mm -hmm. So sit down and let me tell, let me hear your story. And that's the beginning. That's the beginning. And it's really hard and it's an act of will. But then when we do that, something magical might happen. Maybe they'll start to listen to you with that much tenderness and maybe be changed by their world, you know, by what they have to hear, by your story. And maybe not. Maybe not. That's okay. Because you know what? Loving others who are, you don't want to love is an act of preserving your own humanity. Mm-hmm. I can't let any person on this earth make me hate them, said Booker mm-hmm. T. Washington. Right? That's right. It's preserving our own humanity. So that's why I practice it. 
Valerie, when you have those moments of when it gets hard, because I know, like, as clear as you are, and I, it's so beautiful to watch you speak, I'm sure that there are moments when it gets really hard. And in those moments, how do you muster the strength to continue to love? I was at a restaurant before this pandemic hit, and I heard I was working by myself at a table when I heard the word sand nigger over and oh. over. And I turned around, and there was a group of white men sitting at a table just telling stories and just, and I wanted to say bigots and I, I wanted to leave that. And then I thought, uncles, you are my uncles. You are part of me, I do not yet know. You are my uncles. And so I walked over to that table and I said, you know, people have killed members of my family and community using that word. I just need to let mm -hmm. you know what it means to me. And at first they were snarky and they were mean and they were, and then I said, you know, I wouldn't have come over here unless I saw you as my uncles, I am your sister, I am your daughter. If you use that word, you'll never see me as that. And it started to change them. They softened, they got curious, they paused. It didn't work for all of them. And I tell the story in the book. <laughs> um, so it's hard and it's messy and it's not tied up in yeah. a neat bow, but I kept thinking if I, uh, it may not be my job to have those encounters. It certainly not is now. And it may not have been safe to do that in the moment. But if somebody can tend to those wounds, if we leave those people alone, that's how they get radicalized into violence. Mm -hmm. Somebody needs to tend to them. And so we need to support those in our movement who do that work. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Valerie, for being with us today. This was really transformative for me. Thank you so much. Can I leave you with one last thing? Because you started with so much joy and it was just like, I could feel it. And so I just want to share with you one last thing. And that is like on election night, you know, 2016, the, the results are coming in and my, uh, and, uh, and yeah. suddenly my, my son is like, mommy, dance time. And I'm like, what? And my husband was like, it was your rule that we're supposed to dance every night for dance time. We play a song and we dance. I'm like, not tonight. It's like, so we, we did. We turned off the TV and we put on, baby, you're yes. on fire. And at the beginning, I'm just like this. And suddenly, like, my son, like, leaps into my arms. And then he starts laughing. And then I start laughing. And then I'm dancing. I'm dancing, Anasa, on election night. <laughs> Darkest night, right? And every day now, like, sirens go off, we have horrific news, and yet in this household, every day at 6 p.m., we dance. And every night at 8 o'clock after that, we bang our drums outside to cheer on healthcare workers. Yes. So I want to leave you joy, everybody. Joy returns <laughs> us to what what is good and beautiful and worth fighting for. Joy yes. is our greatest act of moral resistance. Let joy in. Let joy in. It's how we will continue this long labor because we need you. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to engage in the labor of love, the kind that moves us towards justice, that refuses to comply with the status quo, and that imagines the world we know in our hearts is possible. You can buy See No Stranger on ValerieKerr.com and be sure to follow her on Instagram at ValerieKerr. And get ready for more of the wellness of we. We are going to continue our conversations each month with our friends Anasa Troutman at The Big We and Nicole Cardoza at Reclamation Ventures. 
You can follow along at The Big We, at Reclamation Ventures, and at Citizen Well. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out.